Welcome to Behind the Edit, a podcast that peeks behind the scenes and discusses the unexpected and often very personal victories, stumbles and detours on a path to building a creative brand and business. I'm your host, Christine Mankies, creative pioneer, award-winning photographer, founder of The Pretty Blog, editor, visual storyteller, problem solver, recovering workaholic, mom and dynamic dot connector. Over the next few months, I'll be sitting down with South African multifaceted designers and entrepreneurs to uncover their unique and at times zigzag journeys to build what seems like a perfectly edited brand. Today on Behind the Edit, I have the honor of hosting architect and urban planner turned entrepreneur, Janneke Milan. If you visited a studio in Stellenbosch, South Africa, you will know her as the friendly face and creative mastermind behind the local interior weaving studio, Mia Melange. Janneke and a team of talented artisans use predominantly 100% cotton rope to coil and hand-stitch high-quality interior decor and lifestyle products that decorate luxury lodges, hotels, and homes around the world. From creative directing every collection to co-running five businesses with her husband, Simon, her work ethic is incredible. When needed, Janneke even manages the cash register, which proves hard work yields results. The brand has received numerous accolades, the most recent being a Best New Product Award at the Handmade Global Design section of New York Now. Over the years, I've had multiple conversations with Janneke that I now realize could have been perfect podcast episodes. And one thing stands out every time, her love for people. I always leave conversations with Janneke feeling inspired to know that something special is happening just around the corner. Welcome to Behind the Edits. I'm very excited to finally have you here and tell the story of your product range, Mia Melange and the brand and all the people behind it. Mia Melange is just around the corner from our old office in Stellenbosch or your brick and mortar store and also your production facility. And as you know, I've popped in numerous times. We always have the best conversations, which seems like a podcast all by itself. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> we should have recorded all of that, but... I've always been fascinated by your space in Stellenbosch, the fact that you have your little retail store there and then you have your production facility and that people can actually see what people are producing and what your team is producing. Tell us a bit more about the space and how you guys work there. The reason for doing that was also to do with the shift in retail all over the world pre-COVID. There was definitely a shift in retail from brick and mortar stores to more online. If you still wanted to do brick and mortar retail, it needed to be something quite special. So we decided that it would be amazing if our customers could see the product and especially for the tourists. The tourists absolutely love seeing how the product is made. (laughs) I'm sure (laughs) they do. And then also we're a team of women and They sometimes get to work really early or they work quite late and I often work very late and I wanted us to be in a safer space. So we didn't want to be in an industrial area, which is why we chose a space in Stellenbosch Town Centre where it is safe and then also to have the added benefit of tourists being able to see how we manufacture our products. Since this is all voice and people can't see any images, (laughs) tell us a bit more about what the space looks like and also the address just for people's reference. So we're at 7 Bird Street in Stellenbosch, which is the section of Bird Street between Church Street and Dorp Street, opposite Bartony Wine Bar. (laughs) It's always a good reference point. (laughs) And so we've got our, our, we've got quite a small shop. 
um, and that is right next to our studio. So it's divided by a glass separator. So you can see the studio from the shop. And then also the studio space also opens up onto the street. So you can actually see the studio from the street, which also creates a great working environment for our team because then they don't feel like they're stuck in a factory somewhere. They can actually see the street. They've got a view and they can see the customers. They can actually see customers appreciating their work. Wow, that's actually a really great way to engage with the community. And I never actually thought about that. That's actually an amazing opportunity for them to yeah, really see is. what people are buying, what they're interested in. I'm sure there's a lot of people taking photos, sharing yes. on social yes. media. <laughs> there are. A lot of people come in and ask if they can actually, they come and walk into the studio. They want to come and stand there and see how it's made and they want to get photos of it. Wow, yeah. and is every product that you guys sell literally handmade in yeah. that space? Yes, everything we make is made there. Wow. And tell us a bit more about the production, the actual manufacturing handmade quality baskets for people who are not aware of what you guys do. That's obviously also differentiated into different products. But just tell us a bit more about the production. How does that work? The way we make our products is by coiling rope. So we predominantly work with 100% cotton rope. And we're very strict about the quality of our materials and the fact that it has to be locally produced. So we only buy rope that is made in South Africa and the cotton, it's South African cotton. So we pay a premium for that because we don't buy anything that's imported. And then the same with our other materials like the thread. We pay three times the price for our thread than you'd pay for thread that's imported because wow. we want to buy locally manufactured thread. And the company that makes the thread, it's just so great to work with them. They do so many brilliant initiatives. For example, they've got olive forests and they run off solar and they don't have much waste. We always keep our cones, we keep the boxes that it comes in, that all goes back to them. And same with the rope, we reuse everything. How we make our products is we coil the rope and then do zigzag stitches. It's quite a difficult process to learn. So, <laughs> and when anyone asks, how long does it take to make this basket? then our standard answer is 10,000 hours. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. I love that. <laughs> because it really is. That is the truth. So that it is. is the it, is the, it is the truth. It takes a long time to perfect the art. And even after years and years of experience, you might be having an off day and you just can't get the shape right or you just can't get the stitching neat. It is really an art to get it right. Wow. You touched there on the sustainability of the way you guys produce. And there's obviously a lot of thought into that. Trying to stay and be sustainable, which is obviously one of your values, and use locally manufactured products, etc., it does come at a premium. How do you juggle that affordability, making the product, but still making sure that there's an audience? So I feel that our audience and our customers are on board with that, and that's what they're looking for, and that's why they buy our product. Our customers like the fact that it's handmade in South Africa, and they like the fact that it's South African materials, and that's what they are looking for. And they are happy to maybe pay a bit more than something that's been imported from the East. I have the same values. I'd rather, say for example, buy one pair of shoes a year instead of three or four or five at the same price that are imported. And I'd rather support a small factory in South Africa that's making that. So I think that our customers are on the same page and they understand. So, yeah. And there's been a big move towards that. I think this buy less, but yeah. let's rather buy better quality. quality. Yeah. I'm curious to know about the scaling of this whole production facility. <laughs> you guys have made it international. You've recently won the best new 
product award at the Handmade Global Design section in New York, which yeah. is amazing. Congratulations. Thanks. When the floodgates open from the international <laughs> side <laughs> and the orders flow in, how do you manage that scaling? Does your customer, are they aware of the fact that this might take longer than they would hope for? Or do you bring in extra hands? How do you manage that? It's a fine balance between scaling too fast and then you don't have the high quality. That has been a challenge for us and it's something that we have to discuss and work on often. We don't want to scale too fast because we are very strict about our quality and because the training takes so long, it's impossible for us to scale fast and we never want to outsource our manufacturing because we want to keep control of the quality and also things like the working conditions and the pay of the artisans. So outsourcing isn't really an option for us. So yeah, it's just how we can scale organically. And we've been doing that. So Memlange in 2017 had two artisans. Now we have 10. Oh, so wow. full-time? Yeah, full-time and overtime. <laughs> <laughs> and we're now talking so, so, about... So they need apprentices very soon. <laughs> yeah, we are trying to see how we can um, increase the size of our team more. But the training does take quite a lot of time. And how does that training happen? Is it something that you facilitate? Is it something that the current artisans facilitate? Yes, yeah. How do you go about that? So usually we do, when we get someone on board, we do want them to have some experience. It's Experience in sewing? In sewing, or? yeah. Just in using an industrial sewing machine. So okay. I will tell you a story about one of our team members who came on board with absolutely zero experience because that's a great story. <laughs> but- <laughs> I love to hear the stories of the people yeah. because they obviously play a huge part yeah. in the brand. So you can see if someone's got some sewing experience and then the other thing is just to see if they get the technique because it's not like sewing fabric or anything else that they've ever sewn before. <laughs> so, And also um, uh, the will to learn is just, it's amazing to see how the new artisans have such a will to learn. So they, they just try and they just keep trying until they get it right. And some of them get it within one week and some of them take like three months. Oh, wow. So we do give them a fair opportunity to try out. So you're quite a graceful <laughs> boss. <laughs> so I'll spend some time with them so that they can get the basic technique right. But then there's so many people there with so much experience that everyone sort of helps out. That sounds really an interesting process. Yeah. <laughs> and you obviously believe in the people and you have a heart for them. So tell me more about the team dynamic. Where do these women come from? How do you find them? The first two ladies who joined the team were both from Stellenbosch. The one has a lot of experience in this sort of industry. And the other one, she used to be a domestic worker and then she worked at a fuel station and then she worked in a supermarket so this was her first real job in this industry. And she, yeah, she just learned very well. Is she and the one that couldn't sew? No. Oh, there's okay. another one. You should tell us that story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we need to like just loop it back to that yeah, side. To that one. <laughs> because I made a little note. <laughs> so she has an amazing story. So the first two that I spoke about earlier, the one of them recommended someone else. So it was like a word of mouth. And she also had had some sewing experience. And then she recommended someone else who also had had some sewing experience. And that one's name was Bonita. And she joined our team in January 2018. She was in her 40s, I think. And she had three kids, a daughter, Verona, who was then in her early 20s, and two young sons. She unfortunately passed away that September while she was working for us. Oh, and that's sad. And yeah, left behind her kids. And at the end of that year, her daughter, Verona, came to ask to ask if her mom's 
position was still available. And we didn't want to replace Bonita. We didn't want to fill her role very quickly because we're a very close knit team and we just wanted to give it some time. So her, her mom's position was still available. And Verona said she wanted to try out for it, but <laughs> she'd been... <laughs> I, I know there's something coming here. <laughs> she'd been working at a liquor store and earning below minimum wage. And she had had absolutely zero experience in this industry. Absolutely none. And I thought it, oh, someone in their early 20s, you know, the youth don't always have the best reputation for working hard. <laughs> we thought, oh, this, I don't know how this is going to work. But we thought, okay, we'll think about it. Then the beginning of the following year, she came back and she said she'd quit her other job. So she would like to start with us. We're like, okay, well, now we have to give her the chance. Executive decision made for yeah. you. <laughs> and she joined our team and she just so badly wanted the work. And she is absolutely phenomenal. She is so talented. She can wow. basically sew with her eyes closed now. Wow. And she's, That is amazing. Yeah, she works incredibly hard. She's super reliable. She now takes care of her brothers and she has a little boy as well. So she can now independently look after her family. She is so talented and such a wonderful person. She's really a lot of fun to have on our team. That's so wonderful to hear a story of someone willing, yeah. right? Like with nothing in their back pocket, everything taken away from them. Yeah but they're willing. And I think that's the type of stories that it's so encouraging to hear. Yeah. So tell me a bit more about COVID. <laughs> Mia Melange, COVID. <laughs> yeah. And lockdown hits. You have a brick and mortar store. Your production facility is basically in the middle of town. And I remember coming to Stellenbosch a few times during when we were allowed to obviously go outside of our homes. And it was like dead silence. There's no movement. And I was so excited to see your little board outside. Like, we are open. <laughs> I think I popped in a few times there to yeah. just like have human interaction. I was like, hey, Janneke, what's happening? <laughs> so tell me, what happened? <laughs> so yeah, that was very interesting. Probably the biggest driver for me to do my job is actually my team. And I feel very strongly about creating jobs in this country. And that's why I would like to keep growing our team. They're my biggest motivation. So if I get up in the morning, that's why I want to go to work, because of them. And at the end of the day, when I'm tired, something's not going right, speaking to my team just makes everything fine. And then I remember why I'm doing everything. Are and you an extrovert, by the way? Not really. Okay. I don't know, actually. <laughs> but you're people orientated, obviously. Yeah, I love my team. I love going to work. So they really are my reason for this business. And the fact that most of them are single moms supporting their family. So this is also their livelihood. Going into COVID, my number one priority was not to retrench anyone. And I oh, just that, thought I'm going really to find amazing. a way that I'm not going to, we're not going to lose anyone on our team. Well, I, don't, well I don't know how I was going to do it, but I knew I was going to do it. About two weeks before lockdown, we started playing around with making some masks. There wasn't any research that was showing that it's good or that it's bad. You know, there was a lot of debate about it. So some people were saying, no, it's not good. Some people were saying it is good. There were some countries that were wearing masks, a lot of countries that weren't wearing masks. It obviously wasn't a law here yet. But we had played around with some designs and found a pattern that we quite liked. So that was about two weeks before lockdown. And then we sort of left it because... No one was saying we had to wear masks and it wasn't really a thing then. I think it was the Monday before our lockdown. We actually decided as a business that we were going to close because things were getting really bad. And a lot of our staff live with older family members and we decided we we're actually going to take the decision before government forces us. We did us. exactly the same actually. Yeah. Then that evening, it was the announcement that we were going to go into lockdown. 
And then I decided, oh, no, I better think of something that the team can do from home for three weeks because it's not like you can take your sewing machine home and your boxes of rope and go and work from home. So we did um, <laughs> we did a design for our lockdown earrings, <laughs> which is basically this, these ones. <laughs> She's wearing them. <laughs> yeah. It's rope with thread, um, cotton rope with thread, and it's quite labor-intensive, so it takes a while to make. We put together packs for each person, a box with different ropes, a template and the different threads and what thread goes with what rope. And we thought, okay, this is going to be enough. It's like a little paint by numbers yeah, situation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they could go and do that at home. And then after three weeks, when lockdown is over, <laughs> we'll come in and we'll finish the earrings off and we can actually sell them on our website or in the tourist of we can sell them. <laughs> anyway, we have like Thousands of pairs of earrings now. <laughs> so anyone into earrings? Yeah. Me and now has a jewelry range. <laughs> we thought about doing a buy one, get 50 free sale. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the team was very productive during the three weeks. Well, it wasn't three weeks in the end. <laughs> so uh, as soon as lockdown hit, then everyone was at home doing their earrings. And I think I took about two days off and then I thought I'm going to use this time now to spruce up our website. It needs a lot of work and our photos need sorting. We're always having customers asking us for photos and I have to go and dig through my files and find something. I thought <laughs> I'm going to do this. And I did like a couple of all-nighters and worked really hard to get the website going. And it really paid off in the end because I haven't had that kind of free time since then. <laughs> then it came out that we actually need to wear masks. Then we went back to our patterns and I worked on some samples, got some mock-ups made. Um, I made some mock-ups and then we thought, okay, we're going to run with this masks thing now because if everyone needs to wear masks, we need to make masks. And some of our team members have sewing machines at home. So this is great. We got our essential services license certificate and then we went to go and get fabric and I was still working from home then, obviously, and preparing the fabric. I think at the beginning, I was actually cutting the, the fabric myself and then just delivering to the team at their houses, like a pack of the fabric and everything that they needed. I think in the beginning, I was doing like a pack of 20, enough for 20 masks at a time. Then we had a staff member in Delft who was working from home. She actually didn't have a sewing machine, but I actually had an extra one at home, just a domestic machine. So I took that for her. And then we had one in Klapmutz, one in Idis Valley, and one in Kalmo. Like <laughs> almost every day I'd be driving around to all those places with the packs of fabric and collecting the finished masks. And we had it for sale on our website and they started selling. And then the demand just became more and more. And eventually, you know, we were delivering like packs of 50 at a time. And then eventually <laughs> there was the lady in Klapmutz, Skola, she was actually started outsourcing to her friend <laughs> oh, in Klapmutz. Your employees start yeah. outsourcing. Is that part of the contract? <laughs> <laughs> so I was paying them per unit. So they just wanted to get the units made. That's amazing. Yeah. And then, I love how people are so innovative. Yes, it was incredible. There was a whole factory going on. Like p pulling in the community yeah. right there. <laughs> and then they eventually started complaining to me because I was taking too long to get the fabric to them. So I said, okay, well, if you guys can cut the masks, I'll just deliver meters of fabrics and you can just... And they said, yes, do that because you're taking too too long. <laughs> so, so the team is really like, yeah. <laughs> so there's I, an intervention happening. <laughs> I started doing that. And then there was the speech. Ramaphosa spoke and that was when he put his mask on <laughs> and our website just exploded. It was 
incredible. I think we had like, I don't know, hundreds of people on the site at the same was time. Was it your mask that he was wearing? No. Okay. No, but he was saying that you had to wear a mask. Oh, okay. And then obviously everyone was Googling masks. And we were on one or two news sites, so we had quite good traction. And then, yeah, we just got so many orders. We actually, after that... Like, how many masks have you sold? I actually haven't counted in a while, but I think we're well over 20,000 now. What? Yeah. And it's all been handmade by our team. That is yeah. crazy. So, And has it been obviously selling locally or having yeah, no shipping yeah. international? It's actually all local because in the beginning, we weren't allowed to export them at okay. all. There was a ban on the export wow, of masks. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really lot is. <laughs> yeah, so it was absolutely crazy. We actually had to make the masks out of stock for, I think we did it for almost a month. Because wow. we couldn't manufacture within our lead time anymore. Are, are they still selling just out of yeah, curiosity? Is it, has it definitely plateaued? It's definitely plateaued, but they are still selling. And now, I mean, it's also more like a fashion accessory. You want one to match your, your what you're wearing. So yes. like we, we're trying to do new fabrics all the time. Okay. So they are still ticking over. It's still nice for the website. And it's nice for the team who work from home. But yeah, anyway, so at one point in time, there were probably about 30 people that were scholars' friends who were working on the masks. <laughs> In and around Klapmut. So it was her and her friend who were sewing, but they were then only sewing. So then they had wow. other people doing the other cutting, pre- yeah, and, cutting and turning the, the mask had to be turned and pressing and inserting the wires. We had one person writing the thank you cards that we sent wow. with every order. <laughs> so it literally became a whole new production line. Yeah. And then we were doing masks with elastic sewn in. They all had to be cut, knotted and the ends needed to be melted. There were like four people just doing that. It was amazing. I was just paying them per unit, and then whatever they were outsourcing, they were sorting out how they were going to pay everyone else. It was absolutely amazing to see how innovative they were doing and how they were creating work for their neighbors. And they were also saying that they, they're so blessed that they have work and they want to share that with their community. That is really inspiring. Like, yeah. I literally have goosebumps all over it was, like, it as t- you're telling the story. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> so we've got a few videos on our website. We went into their home to film where yeah. they were making. I just can't imagine how much pride must come with yeah. that. You know, like actually feeling that you can share what was given to you. Yeah. Like Skola, is that her name? Yeah. Like how she took something that was given to her as a gift and she really just shared it with the community and how it bloomed, like it really grew. Yeah. That's incredible. Like the guy that she was getting to help her, Leonard, he had lost his job prior to COVID. I guess a lot of her friends who were helping her out had lost their jobs. And they were just doing such an amazing work with us. Leonard has subsequently joined our team. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not all women. (laughs) It's not all women, no. He was just, he was really, really good with the masks. And it was such a joy going to visit him when I was collecting the masks. And it's just really great to have him on our team. But yeah, so the masks was, yeah, that was really interesting. And then there were one or two staff members who didn't have sewing machines at home. So they actually came into work. So we got the permits for them as well. And they came to work and they were helping with packing. And we were also preparing the fabric, like doing it in strips so that it was easier to cut. And then some of the team still wanted their fabric pre-cut. So then the team who didn't have sewing machines at home were coming into work and doing that. That is really inspiring. Yeah. Jumping to your normal product line, pre-COVID and probably making it again, (laughs) apart from the masks. How do you stay creative? There's obviously lots of trends happening all over the world. Being a minimalist lover (laughs) 
you fit well with the minimalist home environment. But I also know that you are stocking quite a lot of safari lodges, yeah. etc. How do you keep the creativity going in the team? And from a design point of view, creating new products, how does that naturally happen? So it happens in a few ways. One thing that we do sometimes is have internal design competitions. We haven't actually done it in a while because we've been quite um, full <laughs> with orders <laughs> that we need masks. to you know, and that. Um, but yeah, so we do internal design competitions and then either we set a brief for the team or they can do what they want. And then there's some interesting designs that come from that. Probably the most common way we end up with new designs is from mistakes. So That's incredible, yeah, turning some, a mistake into something usable. Yeah, someone will make something and it will be completely the wrong shape. And then we say, actually, we really like that. Let's do that as a product. Oh, that's um, cool. And then another way is when a customer requests something and they say, can you put this color with this color? And we think, oh, that's a bit weird. But okay, it's what you want, <laughs> we'll do it. And then it's made and like oh, we really like that. We should definitely do a whole collection like that. Do you guys often get approached to do collaborations with um, other brands? Collaborations, yeah, but it's more like interior designers who want very specific things and then they know what colors they want and then we make that specifically for them. So yeah. you are open to something like that? Yeah, definitely. Like when people come yeah, and we they do a lot design of custom something work. unique? Yeah, we do a lot of custom work. Okay. And what is the split between your sales in terms of local and international? I know that you guys do export. Yeah, I think it varies um, depending on which month it is. And obviously we haven't been able to do the last two trade shows overseas. But usually it's consistently, I'd say, about a third of our sales are international. And then during the months that we've just done the trade shows, it's quite a bit more. And e-com. Let's touch on e-com, like pre-COVID. <laughs> I know we, we had this conversation about yeah. your website previously, and I'm very curious to know your thoughts on social media and e-com prior and post-COVID. <laughs> so COVID has been a very interesting time. I think it's kind of forced South Africa to move faster towards e-com than it would have if it wasn't for COVID. Definitely. So that's been very interesting. But our business is predominantly wholesale, and we've got such... Okay fantastic stockists that we don't really want to focus on our own website. We most certainly don't want to compete with our stockists. So oh, wow. e-com is not the biggest focus for us. But yeah, COVID time was very interesting, obviously because of the masks. We <laughs> <laughs> our website was very busy because of that. And I think that was obviously good for our website. And now since that, there's definitely been an uptick on our own online store and just the shift towards e-commerce. So people don't necessarily want to come in store anymore. And if you are predominantly focused on wholesale, how does that work from a marketing point of view? How do you market wholesale? Like for other creatives that are building businesses, and I've always found the wholesale topic quite interesting because I think a lot of people start out with a small brand, creating products. They don't even think about th something like VAT or wholesale. You know, that kind of comes along as the journey progresses. But for you guys being predominantly wholesale, what does your marketing strategy look like? Like how do you actually get it out there? I think for us, we've just been very blessed with a consistent flow of orders. So we don't really have a marketing strategy. I think the main thing that we do is we do trade shows and that's a great way to get new customers. International ones? Or yeah, local? international and local. Okay. Yeah. I guess our main strategy is just to always have really good quality products so that we have continuous reorders. And it's like good word of mouth and yeah. that just like yeah. rolls over. Yeah. We try and have good quality and good service and to always convey our true story, which is, 
you know, we try and be very open about who the artisans are, how everything is made, that it's all locally made. And hopefully that conveys then to the end customer who would then support our stockists. I'm going to jump to Simon, <laughs> your other half. <laughs> He's not here with us, but I've I found your approach to business very interesting and very few people might know the fact that you did not start Mia Melange. Yeah. So let's just go into that little rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> about Janneke and Simon's approach to business. To business. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's an interesting so, one. So, so tell us that story. <laughs> Simon, my, yeah, my husband, he has slightly more of a background in business than I do. He comes from a family of entrepreneurs. His dad has multiple businesses. I come from a family where my sister's an accountant and my brother's an engineer and I'm an architect. <laughs> so not really an entrepreneurial background. But yeah, so anyway, I started... But you do build things or you yeah. <laughs> part of the building process, you yeah. trained in the building process. I studied architecture. I did my master's in architecture and then I did my master's in urban design and the whole time, Simon and I were working together on all sorts of random small businesses and business ideas. Simon studied uh, a BCom, but he, he never really <laughs> ended up working for anyone. And yeah, me also, I didn't really work for anyone. I did a few freelance jobs and a few cool projects, but I didn't ever work really as an architect in the profession for like a full-time job. So when I was studying my urban design after I graduated, I had a look at applying for urban design jobs and I looked at what the jobs entailed and I just thought I can't see myself doing that. And because we had been doing so many little side businesses, I thought, well, we'll just carry on with that maybe. So what, what were these side businesses? <laughs> oh my gosh, we have a really long list of things that we've tried. Oh, you, need to, you, need, you need to tell us, what are those? One of the fun ones, it was actually a memory that popped up onto my Facebook the other day, was <laughs> Simon complained that he could never find nice cotton shorts. So we're like, okay, well, we'll just make them. <laughs> We, there was an organization in Kailicha called Learn to Earn. We went to them and we bought lots of fabric and they started making shorts for us. And they were called Striped Mangoes. They were... <laughs> is this the company? Like, yeah. is, the, is this the brand? Striped Mango. Yeah. <laughs> and, okay, does this still exist? No, it doesn't. But there are still a few Striped Mangoes around the globe. All of my cousins have them and they absolutely <laughs> love them. I think that's so, actually where all our inventory went. So it's like a Easter egg hunt. <laughs> yeah. And they were, they were really fun shorts. We had two different colorways, turquoise and white stripe and green and white stripe. And then okay. we did a fun pocket on the back and the, the lining of the pockets on the side were a fun print. It was either like polka dots or something really cool. <laughs> we did one market and we sold some of them. And then, yeah, as I said, my family just basically took all the rest of the inventory. <laughs> well, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> it's still a sale, I hope. <laughs> yeah. That was really fun. And then we decided, okay, no, we're not quite sure about this whole manufacturing process. I don't think we've got it nailed yet. And then we moved on to the next thing. We did some digital marketing and I did a, like a bit of freelance work and we tried another online store, but this was like way before online was really anything good. <laughs> and so, we did so what was that? There wasn't a nice online store just targeted at men's gifts. So we did a men's gift online store, but that was before we knew what margins were. And <laughs> <laughs> it was like the best business model. <laughs> I love that. It's like me. Um, I started selling chocolate cake. I think it was like we had this entrepreneur day in high school and I was selling this big chocolate cake every Friday you know, the caramel on top, oh, yeah. like, it was just amazing. It sold, like, within 
10 minutes until my mom told me that the raw product isn't for free anymore oh dear, <laughs> from yeah. the pantry. And I was like, oh, this is not really profitable anymore. <laughs> So one learns. Yeah, so we learn. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so everything was basically based online or we're working from home and we were actually living in Joburg at the stage. And then Simon was busy with some other tech startups and we thought, why, will, why are we living in Joburg when we're just working from home? Let's just move back to the Cape. And we thought it would be fun to actually buy a brick and mortar business because we've never had one of those before. We've only, <laughs> <laughs> only ever been working online. <laughs> So let's not stay in the, in, the, in the space that we understand. Let's yeah, just let's go and something new. something new. And we also thought, you know, looking at the failure rate of new businesses, that maybe it's a good strategy to buy an existing business. We worked with a business broker and we bought a stationery and gift shop in Franschhoek. <laughs> it really needed a lot of work and it needed a serious coat of paint and a lot more. We got in there. And we're also like slight workaholics. We were doing all-nighters and there very often. And we only had one staff member and obviously she can't work seven days a week. So Simon and I were also being cashiers. And I remember people would come in and chat to me and say, but you're an architect, why are you working as a cashier? (laughs) (laughs) And then I had to explain, no, we're just going to get this up and running and then we're going to either franchise or we're going to get another one or we're going to do something else. Yeah, we have a plan. It's just we not have there a plan. yet. <laughs> yeah, we just, we're not going to be cashiers forever and just do this. You know, we need to create jobs. We got a, another staff member and then it was brilliant. They were the two staff that, they, that back then that we had and are still with us now and they're absolutely fantastic. They can just run that business. They're really, really good. Their customer service is good and they're just innovative and they do new products Within six months, they were handling everything and Simon and I were then free to look at doing something else. So yeah, as I said, like I was very driven to create jobs because actually both my architecture thesis and my urban design thesis looked at disparity in South Africa, obviously from a spatial point of view initially, but my urban design masters, I was actually looking at the disparity in Stellenbosch. So how the town center and Kaimandi, for example, are so badly segregated. Basically, to get from Kaimandi to Stellenbosch, you can either walk over that bridge, you can cross the railway line, like in mud, or you have to go through the industrial area. So it's so badly segregated and access to opportunities is really difficult. So I was looking at how you can design a city to encourage local entrepreneurship. It's crazy how that whole story brings you to this whole journey, like how it all ties in. There's obviously little dots that we're connecting. Yeah. (laughs) Then I was looking at theories like import replacement. So what do we import in Stellenbosch that we can actually manufacture locally? So that was all part of my thesis and how we can create physical spaces to facilitate that. That's kind of like my point of departure for wanting to go into small businesses. And there you found yourself cashiering. Yeah. (laughs) And then I became a cashier. (laughs) And you're like, this is just all too complicated. I'll just work the toll. <laughs> which turns out was also not very good. Simon actually got scammed, which a very experienced cashier would not do. <laughs> okay, so he still had something to learn. Yeah, he still had to learn how to not be scammed. It's called a change razor. Scam. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> yeah, okay. so anyway, fast forward then after we got really good cashiers in and just really good staff to run that business. Then we took a trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo to Eastern DRC to Virunga National Park. It's where the 
very endangered mountain gorillas are. It's a phenomenal park and I definitely want to go back there. It's incredible the work that they do there. They really give their lives to the park and to protecting the gorillas. And because it's such a dangerous area to live in and to work in because of the conflict in Eastern DRC, the rangers actually do often get killed. There's a lot of conflict there and a lot is to do with coal and with, um, yeah, just... That is sad. Yeah, it's really sad. So unfortunately, a lot of them do get killed. And then because there's no support for the women who get left behind, no government support, the park started a ranger's widow sewing project. And we went to go and visit that. And it's amazing what they've set up there. They've taught the women how to sew and they now make clothing and uniforms and things for the park. And they also make stuff that they export, like bags and napkins and things like that. And it really creates a good source of income for them and they can support themselves. Did you visit the facilities where they produce? Yeah, yeah, we did. Oh, that must be incredible. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, this is amazing. And they're doing this in like a conflict-ridden Eastern DRC. I'm pretty sure we can get something right in Stellenbosch. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) There must be a way. (laughs) There must be a way. I mean, they're managing to export with DHL from that area. I'm pretty sure we can do something here. We came back from that and I thought, okay, I'm just going to start an NGO now. Something that we can make that it's sort of quite labor-intensive and that we can make and export and sell all over the world that's going to create employment for people in Stellenbosch. And then at the same time, we were still looking for another physical business to buy. So how many businesses are on the list currently? Um, like five. Five. <laughs> and so what is the list going to be? Like, what is the end goal? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see where the journey takes us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So we came back and I was looking at things and I thought maybe ceramics because I used to do ceramics. And then, yeah, still browsing through with business brokers and Gumtree for businesses for sale. <laughs> and then I came across this homeware business for sale on Gumtree. No, you're joking. <laughs> And I showed Simon, he's like, no, it doesn't look very good. Like, okay, let's leave it. Let's look at something else. And then a while later, it came up again. And I said, I want to go and look at this business for sale. Now, is there like physical photographs? I'm very aware of Gumtree and selling a product that you don't want anymore. But now selling a business, what does that look like? Yeah, Do they there's show lots that? of businesses for sale on Gumtree. And they actually show you like what they're they, doing. They don't and... always show everything. It's just okay. usually like if it's a, a restaurant, it might just be like a, a photo of a um cappuccino or something okay so it usually doesn't give away too much information anyway we went to go and look at the business and yeah just fell in love immediately and and, and this was Mia melange yeah <laughs> that is crazy and yeah we just thought hey i had a great chat with Mia, and i saw a lot of potential and we thought we could definitely grow this to something a bit bigger get it management run and then move on to something else So you guys are obviously focused on the whole management run concept because having five businesses in your pocket looking for more, (laughs) it seems, you're quite focused on that. How do you take a business like Mia, for instance, and get it to that point? What are are the things, the key things? That didn't happen with Mia (laughs) Melange. Okay, not that one. (laughs) It just really surpassed my expectations. Even now, today still, I feel like, I can, if I put time into this business, I can grow it still more than if I was to put the same amount of time into any other business. I mean, I've been really involved with this now for like three years. This one has captured a bit of your heart more than just your mind. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) It's my baby now. And we've just built such a fantastic team. And as I say, like, if I'm not at work, I have serious FOMO. (laughs) (laughs) That is the cutest thing I've ever heard. 
<laughs> you mentioned that you guys are workaholics, right? Like looking at owning five businesses, you and Simon quite involved with all of them. How do you, is there even balance? I don't even want to say like, how do you do the work-life balance? Because you're talking about all-nighters, etc. Is that a topic of discussion amongst the two of you? <laughs> Not very often. I would say that I love what I'm doing probably like 99% of the time. For me, it's not really about balance because I absolutely love what I do and I wouldn't want to really have it any other way. For example, on a Saturday, I'm at work at seven o'clock in the morning. Wow. Because honestly, I don't know what I'd rather do with my time. I've got hobbies, but I'd actually rather just be at work because that's my favorite hobby. That is such a cool way to look at it. Ian and I have this discussion all the time about work-life balance and I think there's so many blog posts and so many podcasts and I think everyone is trying to figure it out. And if you say you have figured it out, you probably haven't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What it boils down to for me is that everyone's work-life balance concept looks different for every mm, person. Definitely. And so it really comes down to like what your view is and also what your motivation is and what your goal is in terms of what you want to achieve. And as yeah. you mentioned, we all have a certain amount of time. And the question is, where do you put that time? If that's what you love, then why not yeah. spend all your time there? Exactly. So I don't see the point of... For example, I would not enjoy sleeping late on a Saturday, going to have a lazy breakfast and then going to lie on the couch. I have no interest in doing that on a Saturday. I would just feel like I'm wasting my time. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> so I can come by at like eight o'clock and you'd be ready with a coffee? Definitely. <laughs> well, I wake up at like five or six on yeah. a Saturday because I've got a two-year-old. So <laughs> by eight o'clock, we yeah. are desperate for a coffee shop. <laughs> yeah. The same with Simon and I, even in our time that we're not at work, we're still talking about work stuff. And if it's not about our current businesses, it's about new ideas. That's what really energizes us. Sometimes we'll have a date night where we say we're not allowed to talk about work, but then we always end up coming, end up. <laughs> end up talking about either work or new ideas. And it's like, maybe we should try this new idea or this new idea. So it's really what drives us and what energizes us. It's what we love to do. For us, it's definitely not about trying to leave work at six o'clock and then switch off. We'll go for a run or do some exercise and we do try and at least have some social evenings with <laughs> friends and family. Well, it's also been a bit more difficult now with oh. COVID. But yeah, I mean, other than that, I want to be at work. I can't wait to get to work in the mornings. And what does the role split look like? A lot of people ask me and Ian, like, how do you guys, we both have our own separate businesses, but for... I want to say the history of our relationship. <laughs> we've worked together. You yeah. know, we've always shared ideas very much like you guys. We say that we're not going to talk about business, but we end up not yeah. necessarily discussing the operations, but we do discuss new ideas. Exactly. How do you find that like working with your husband and what is the role split? What is his skill set? What's your skill set? And how do you guys work around that? We're just very fortunate that it's worked so well that we complement each other. And I think we definitely each have our different skill sets. He's very good at doing what I have no idea how to do and vice versa. And we've sort of more and more settled into our roles, but we always discuss everything together. When we have team meetings, even the management that we've got in our businesses as well, they also sort of work across and we'll all sit down together and talk about ideas for all the different businesses. So that's also oh, wow. very interesting. Our management team is also involved at that level. So they don't have only like one business. Yeah, one business to work So you can on. actually utilize someone that's skilled at a higher level thinking and implementation yeah. and you can use it across. Yes. Yeah. So the one 
from Mia Melange would maybe come up for ideas for Simon's business and vice versa. It's very interesting how that also works. Uh, Simon and I, we haven't really sat down and defined our roles. It's sort mm. of just happened. Natural. Yeah, it's happened very naturally. I just took up some tasks and he took up other tasks. It's very seldom that I have to ask him to do something specific or he asks me to do something specific. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> if there's one thing you could give Africa, what would that be? More credit. Wow, that is... Okay, I'm going to end it there. That is amazing. Thanks, Janneke, for coming. It's Thank was, you so much for having, having me. Having you. <laughs> if you're enjoying Behind the Edit, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and don't forget to leave a review. For those who are curious, Behind the Edit is part of a larger drive to uplift our local design industry and sister company to The Pretty Blog. If you'd like to follow what we're building, please visit thelocaledit.com and sign up to stay in the know. And as always, please keep spreading the local love on social media by following and tagging The Local Edit on Instagram. I'm Christine Mankies and you're listening to Behind the Edit.